0: This is part one of Black Architecture's Indigenising Education talk. Black Architecture is an annual Empowerment talk series bringing together Indigenous built environment practitioners.
1: Uh, thanks everyone for coming down to our fourth Black Architecture talk. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country that we're on, the Yallakut Willem of the Bunurong, and pay our respects to uh, to elders, past, present, and future. And I'd like to thank the University of Melbourne in particular for sponsoring the event that we have tonight. And so tonight's event is about indigenising education. And we'll cover the topics of what does indigenising education mean in the built environment? Should we learn about the Indigenous built environment? And if so, what should we learn? When, how, why and from whom? And we'll hear from some current students and practitioners and educators about uh, their responsibilities and possibilities of the future of education, especially with respect to Indigenous design. Uh, next to oh sorry. No, I'm going in a different order. <laughs> next to me I have the lovely Jasmine Hocking. Uh, Jasmine Hocking recently graduated from the Bachelor of Interior Design um, uh, Honours. Sorry. Last year graduated from the Bachelor of Interior Design Honours at RMIT. She completed her thesis uh, exploring housing in the Walper community of Lajumanu... Um, she has spent the last year working for SEED, Indigenous Youth Climate Network, but has recently begun work at the Australian Catholic University. And SEED is an Indigenous organisation working to bring Indigenous youth together to tackle issues surrounding climate change and ensuring the protection of country. Jasmine also sits on the Academic Advisory Board for the Bachelor of Design, Interior Design? Design, Interior Design at RMIT. Um, next to Jasmine, we have Dr Kelly Greener. Dr. Kelly Greenup has worked and collaborated and, and researched with Indigenous people uh, about their architecture, places, and country since 1997. She's a senior lecturer at the University of Queensland School of Architecture and has one of four editors of the Handbook of Contemporary Indigenous Architecture that just came out, or well, that came out this year. Yeah. Um, and internet, oh, sorry. An international collection of, so the Handbook of Contemporary Indigenous Architecture is an international collection of 34 chapters on contemporary architecture by, for and about Indigenous people. Kelly has researched Indigenous people's households, cultural needs, experience of crowding, uh, crowding place attachment and the meaning of country in urban Indigenous settings and embedded this into her architecture teaching across undergraduate and postgraduate teachings. She is a member of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies and conducts research with the Aboriginal Environments Research Centre at the University of Queensland.
2: I did too long a bio, didn't I?
1: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Also just like flying off the handle, sorry. Wind. Um, And... Finally, we have Michael Fromick. Michael has a range of specialisations in the bo- broad area of design, theory and architecture. These include the nature of design and its role towards society... ...and the relationships between theory and practice in planning society in the city. Michael is currently doing a PhD at the University of Technology, Sydney... ...and teaches in the Bachelor of Design and Architecture... ...covering architectural design and history and theory subjects... His thesis focuses on the idea of the urban Indigenous community in Redfern and questions what are the values that constitute this community, how do they differ from what might be considered traditional Indigenous values and how have they been altered in an inner city process? How might the proposed future developments of the block contain these values? Descending from the Barawang uh, tribe and of the Yuin Nation, his other research interests surround the idea of contemporary Indigenous identity and how it might be formalised through the built form. So thank you guys for coming down today. Uh, my first question to you is I'd, I'd just like to ask you a little... ...to reflect a little bit on your own education experience... ...and talk about whether or not your... ...the your, the, the education experience that you went through... ...actually had any Indigenous content in the degree. Was it sufficient? And how you felt about it?
0: Uh, um, okay, I'll start. Thank you. Thank you, girls. <laughs> um... Did my indigenous? Did my education have any indigenous content in it? No, uh, and I finished architecture at the University of Technology Sydney, two thousand and thirteen. So it wasn't that long ago. Um, we might have had an acknowledgement of country at one point during a during an opening of a lecture or something, but apart from that, uh, nothing.
2: Uh. I was telling um, Michael and um, Jasmine and Sarah Lynn that I started architecture school 30 years ago in February. So, it was a really long time ago, um, as old as as Jasmine is. uh, But nevertheless, it did did include uh, Indigenous content, which I was really fortunate to receive because the Aboriginal Environments Research Centre at that time and still now run by Professor Paul Mehmet... ...was within the School of Architecture. But I have to say it was an isolated part. So, I suddenly in third year came across a subject called People and Environment Studies... ...and we learned all sorts of things about people and their environment. So, it wasn't only focusing on Indigenous architectural content... ...but that was part of it. And then I did a thesis about Indigenous place and architecture in Pinderby Country... ...all from books um, to finish my degree but I was also fortunate because I had Indigenous people in my class and so I learnt a lot about um, indigeneity and architecture and community from them. So, um, I'd I'd really like to acknowledge them, uh, Andrew Lane and Carol Gosam and others who were going through with me at the time. So, that was a real eye-opener and that really stitched things together for me. But, of course, it wasn't sufficient. It was only really isolated and we didn't learn about it in terms of architectural history. It was its own little special thing.
3: Um, Yeah, I think similarly, Um, and I only graduated last year. Um, I never participated in any uh, sort of courses throughout my degree that had anything to do with Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander culture. Um, And I I wasn't personally aware of any that were running throughout my degree. I'm not sure if there are now. Um, And I think what was really disappointing was in my final year when I was undertaking my thesis, um, I was often met with non-Indigenous tutors ...who would offer up a suggestion um, that I look into... ...and mind you, I was doing my thesis in my own community in Lajumanu... Uh, ...which is a Walbury community. Um, and they would often suggest I look into a, a non-Indigenous practitioner... ...to base, you know, some of my designs off of... ...and, you know, there are Aboriginal architects... ...there are Aboriginal designers. Why aren't these being suggested? Why aren't these being spoken about? Um, and it was really frustrating... Um, constantly having to argue the importance of uh, Indigenous design and the value in Indigenous design and knowledge. Um, yeah, it was it was hugely disappointing, particularly because I thought RMIT would be better than that.
1: Um, yeah. I think my experience is quite similar to all of you. I studied my undergrad at um, Melbourne Uni and my master's at Cambridge and the... The biggest problem I found was, A, there was no content except for maybe 10 minutes in one lecture on history. And it was pre-1788 content. Um, So, there was no contemporary understanding of what Indigenous architecture is, was or could be. Um, But at the same time, there was no critical debate. So, none of my teachers were equipped with the capacity to respond to any content. So, it always gets glossed over. And you always do get the same... Like at, at Cambridge I got, um, have you looked at Glenn Merkitt's work? And you're like, okay. So literally every person that's come to this to crit me is... ...that's the only reference they have. And it's like, okay, fair enough. But there's not enough capacity for critical debate. So I think it's really important that we are having this conversation... ...because it will allow us to sort of explore a little bit... ...about what needs to be done and what needs to change... ...and how that might happen. Um So, on that topic, what should we be teaching students and what do today's students need to know to be effective built environment practitioners or researchers or whatever field they end up going into?
0: Um, We should teach them a lot about um, Aboriginal Australia because (coughs) um, development demands it. So, any project, I don't know if everyone knows, any project over, I don't know the exact number, one or five million, needs an Aboriginal heritage assessment or an Aboriginal participation plan. And so that is around achieving targets similar to government, where government wants to have 3% or 2.8% of Indigenous Australia represented in all walks of life. Um, And so in that sense, I assume there's a lot of architects here and a lot of people uh, interested in the built environment. We kind of need to know that from that sense because if we're going to be engaging with it, we... Hopefully we do it in a good way. Hopefully we do it in an authentic way, a respectful way. Um, so I think, we, I think we should. I'm starting at that point. But what should we be teaching? What should we? Doctor? <laughs> we
2: should be teaching everything. Um, I know that sounds a bit trite, but there's so much to cover and nearly any content that you have should have a component thinking about what does this mean for... Australia's Indigenous people, like if we're talking about architectural history, we shouldn't only start from Greece and look at, you know, orders of columns. We should also be looking at, you know, the classical Aboriginal architecture um, and making sure that has a place in our history. Um, And similarly, when we're talking about contemporary architecture, we should be making sure that we cover what Indigenous designers and architects are doing, but also how indigeneity is represented, because that's a really big debate, obviously, in australia's cities at the moment how are we using these kind of um identities and is that appropriate and what are the stories and arguments around that uh so i think there's a place for it everywhere in the content really um and that's that's appropriate for australia where we're on aboriginal land we should be thinking about it in every way um and in design you know whose country is this that we're designing for should we be thinking about that? Maybe you should talk to them. I mean, it's not... That's, that's in an ideal world. That's really hard to do because often there's no money to consult with traditional owners or the people of the land or people who might have an interest, which could all be different groups. So, if we're really committed to that, the academy has to get behind that and start saying, well, what does that look like and how can we support that? That's a big issue, I think, for me.
3: Yeah, I think... Um In order to start decolonising uh, education, we need to... I mean, prior to students even getting to tertiary education, I think an accurate um, teaching of history is just needed. It's like the bare minimum. Um, And then I think um, acknowledging that um, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations are very different and there's not one pan-Aboriginal way of designing or teaching or learning. Um, And I think really acknowledging that in educational institutions is so important it's something that absolutely does not happen Um, because we can't be teaching the same curriculum in Queensland, even just in one city as we do um, another. And just acknowledging that to start with would be, um, I think, a huge feat.
0: I'll I'll just mention another thing. Um, I think you're both right, the idea that each location has a particular design associated with it. Um, You know, everyone knows the Aboriginal dot painting, right? Does anyone know where that's from? Yeah, you're right. It's Western (laughs) Western Desert Desert area, area, right? Um, Whereas in eastern states, so the eastern side of Australia, the line is much more important. So the, the straight line, the curvy line, the bent line. Um, so Bunurong design, so this is the country where we're on, it has a very um, strong dominant diamond pattern. And it's a beautiful pattern. And, and, and it's iterated and it's different, but, but that is one thing that deter, um, distinguishes Boon people. And a lot of... I've been working with um, the Boon community for the SPA project, the Southern Program Alliance. It's where they're removing the rail to provide public space underneath. And we've got an urban marker there um, and we've consulted with the indigenous community there, um, some elders, some artists, and they have helped us come up with a beautiful pattern. And, so, and their idea is that we see this pattern and, and it says something about us. That pattern is actually us. That's an interesting thing if you think about it. Uh, the first time they said it, I was like, how can a pattern be you? Um, but that's how they feel. That's, and, and then it goes deeper than that. The diamond within a diamond represents man. The circle in a diamond represents woman. So, there's all these interesting things. So, I guess my point is, what should we be teaching? It should be exactly that. It should be, one, where are we teaching? Are we teaching in Melbourne? That, that means we need to be teaching Melbourne Aboriginal design knowledge. If it's Western Desert, we should be doing something else. And then how does that be reinterpreted into a contemporary space is very exciting. I mean, you, you guys have some beautiful examples here in your city. The Cree Heritage Trust is amazing. Um,
2: I guess one thing I'd like to add is that um, there are some places that are doing this really well and um, I guess University of Auckland would be one. They've got um, a Maori head of school coming in in the new year, Professor Deirdre Brown, she's amazing and they teach so many different um, Pacifica and Maori and other heritage um, ...heritages of architecture and they let people follow their own path too. So if there's a young Maori design student there... ...who wants to learn about their cultural heritage... ...and express that through their studio... ...they really support them to do it... ...and it's incredible what they'll come up with. And um, they have a master's design thesis at the end, you know... Um, ...the culmination of their masters... ...and there's a young man who just completed his whole presentation... ...in Reo Maori for the first time, um, just recently... ...and it took them ages to find a panel that could speak... <laughs> Uh, Terra Maori, Maori language well enough to be able to not just understand but have an architectural debate about what he was talking about. But they did it. And now they've done it. They're thinking, this is fantastic. We can do this again. We can do this for all sorts of different groups and languages. And they brought him over to a symposium with us recently and um, Sarah Lynn probably met him. It was really inspiring to think... People are taking this and moving it forward faster than we are here and I think we should really be looking across the Tasman and saying, yep, they've, they're doing some really cool stuff. Let's do the same thing. We could do far worse than copying them. Yeah.
0: I, I find it interesting when I talk to my Maori colleagues, they often say, oh, we do such bad work here. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, I, we think you guys are amazing. And they go, really? <laughs> so it's just... ...no-one's really happy with what we're doing. Uh, maybe we can always do more, I suppose.
1: Yeah, we are certainly further away from that than Maori... ...and especially in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those sort of locations are much further along than we are... ...in terms of infusing our degrees with any sort of Indigenous content. Um, the, the next question I have is what is specifically on teaching. Who, who can teach what content? Is there any content that non-Indigenous teachers can't teach... And is there any content that can only be taught by Indigenous practitioners and by traditional owners?
0: Of course, yeah. I mean, these cultural patterns start to get towards that. I know there's deeper ideas. Um, and the way I'll describe it is I have an uncle in um, Buttawang, Yuin country, which is where my family's from, the Aboriginal side of my family. Um, and he would always say, Aboriginality is a bit like a cappuccino, all right? So you've got the frothy stuff at the top, and then you've got the deep milk-richy coffee and often people will only ever understand the top you'll never understand this deeper and and nor should you in 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 some sort of ways um but but back to the idea of patterns is is that is is very much a legally thing that we can't um appropriate so there's the famous case of the Fiji Airlines where they took a beautiful design, a Fiji design, and just put it on the, 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 the plane. And they got sued. Um, they, if they asked for the pattern, if they consulted the, the, the design community, none of this would have happened, but it was this kind of, oh, design's just design, and I can just take what I want, which is often what we do in many examples, as long as we reference it. But I think indigenous design has that loaded element, which is... Um, Indigenous people can be empowered through design. And so if a non-Indigenous person is doing that, you're taking power away in some ways?
3: (coughs) Yeah, I think, um, again, it comes back to the region um, that you're talking about because you need to consider traditional law and traditional governance. Um, So it depends on the traditional owners. Um, I think at the end of the day, they should be determining what and who is... ...teaching anything. And if non-Indigenous people are entitled to that knowledge um, as well... ...I think is a huge thing uh, that's often not discussed. Because the knowledge is there and the law is there. It's just something that I think... um, ...yeah, our society often overlooks... um, ...and really doesn't place any value in. Um, It's something Lydia Thorpe was really pushing for... um, ...in the whole treaty process. Um, You know, a treaty... ...without governance and law that is traditional, you know, what is it at the end of the day? And I think it's the the same can be said for design. Um, If we're not really considering tradition... ...and if we're not really considering traditional law, um, then what is it really?
2: Uh, Well, I teach about... Um, indigenous design all the time, and I'm not indigenous at all. Um, so I'm I try and be really careful to not appropriate people's knowledge, and really, what I'm trying to do is give students a bit of a primer so that when they might go out to be practitioners, they might have some idea of how to approach a design problem. That they do need to consult with traditional owners. That there are there is a concept of. Um, intellectual property for Indigenous people. So, I guess, as a non-Indigenous person, I see my role as making people aware that those things exist, that um, there's a whole world out there that they probably haven't really thought a lot about and that they should start thinking about it. But obviously, non-Indigenous teachers and academics shouldn't speak for Indigenous communities and shouldn't start... um, acting as if they have some sort of authority in those areas, that that's a really dangerous game to play and would be a really bad idea um, and a pretty quick way to get told off as well, I'd say. So I think that's really important. Um, and I actually think it can be quite useful because I've seen, you know, a lot of um, grads would ring me up and say, oh, I'm designing a healthcare centre and it's going to be in Cooparoo. Can you tell me the name of a totem in Cooparoo so that we can name it... A, a special name and I'd say no don't do that and so I think if they had studied some of the courses that we have taught they would have realized that that was a bad idea to begin with Um, and so there is some of that kind of knowledge that's really helpful for practitioners to know and then they don't make those kind of dumb mistakes that we see happening again and again with naming and um, appropriating. So I guess what you can teach is don't appropriate, but maybe here are some processes that, that people have already investigated, and that it's a bit more complicated. That's almost the most important thing to teach.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting example. And if they just played that a little bit differently, and it doesn't it's, it doesn't shouldn't cost a huge amount of money to find, engage with a community, engage with a local elder in some ways, get them involved. In, 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 in what way would be appropriate and, and in that way that, that those namings processes would have come. But the whole, um, oh, I just want something really quickly, can I get it? Well, no, you can't. It, it takes time. It, if it's going to be unauthentic or if it's going to be rushed, then I think we all have a bit of a problem with that.
1: Is it then about universities working with traditional owner groups in the land where their um, campuses occupy to actually figure out what those ethos and protocols might be? so that when they're running studios they're empowered to follow those processes. So I think a lot of the studios that we have are quite isolated and they're one-offs rather than them being a series of subjects that are ongoing or are core subjects. There's only one core subject in Australia that has Indigenous content that that every student that goes to that university has to do. And so most students can go through an entire degree without having any exposure. Um, So how much of that... Well, I guess, how would you go about... ...or have you before worked with communities... ...to develop what those protocols and processes are... ...and then apply them to the way that you teach?
3: Well, I think... I'm, obviously, I'm not a teacher... ...but <clears throat> it should be less about working with traditional owners and communities... ...and more about putting these communities and traditional owners... ...in positions of power and positions of authority. Like, uh, how far can you go when you're just working with, you know, traditional owners... If they're not really the decision-makers at the end of the day and the, if they're not in the highest positions of power, uh, what job have you really done? Just um, I just often feel, we were talking about it earlier, consulting. you know, When you're just consulting and you're not really taking on board what's actually been given to you and the knowledge that's been passed down to you, um, it sort of makes it redundant in the end, I think. Um, yeah.
0: What was the question again? Sorry.
1: Should we be working with traditional learner groups to develop protocols and processes that can be taken on by university um, subject coordinators and teachers to apply, to, their, to apply universally to their studios, or does it have to be an individual?
0: Okay, well, at the University of Technology in Sydney, we went through a year of indigenising our content. And it was a great year. And then the year ended. And now no more indigenous content. Oh, really? And it really sucks. <laughs> And, and that was down to few individual um, uh, studio leaders or coordinators. And they were like, I'm personally interested in Indigenous knowledge. And then they looked some of us up. They, so I'm part of Jumbunna, the Indigenous House of Learning at UTS. And they said, oh, do you have any Indigenous designers we can get involved with? And so we, we built something. And I, I guess to, to sort of answer the question... We, we, we did it through individual relationships. And so Darug country, which is in Sydney, um, Eora country, Darug, same thing. It's... Um, <laughs> I know you get that one. Um, look it up. Um, it's a bit different. You know, the nature of how the area was colonised has really affected um, leadership structures in Sydney. Uh, it's very different in, d- in other areas where there still is a stronger connection to who is the elder. Um, but we, we did source um, some, some people who have Darug heritage and, and are associated with um, the kind of knowledge that they're dealing with. And so we, we got them in and we, we would, there were a series of lectures, um, tutorials, masters. You know, a whole bunch of things. We had Bill Gamage come and lecture. Amazing. You know, everyone's got to read his book. Uh, the Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia. Really good book. Um, Bruce Pascoe. So we got some of the biggest people to come in. And then it just all fell apart because of that that one person um, not necessarily not being interested in it anymore, but a little bit like that. They're like, yeah, we did it. We did it last year. Yeah. And so they that, that were great, but they could have been better. <laughs>
3: See, for me, that sort of sounds like it's because really the root problem is not bringing in this curriculum and sort of reshaping things, but it's actually getting to the bottom and beginning to dismantle these systems that are in place that stop this sort of development from continuing. Um, because when we start to dismantle it and when we start to give students the tools to dismantle and decolonize these systems that are put in place to hold people back, I think then... Perhaps when things like this are introduced, they actually have a chance, yeah. and um, you, you're actually giving them a go to sort of to thrive and, and flourish.
0: Yeah, then that's a good point. And and just to just to finish the the point about UTS, to their credit, they've employed a full time Indigenous designer, Alison Page. I'm sure you, a lot of you know of her, amazingly talented person. So she's come on board. Um, ...as a full-time academic... ...but because everyone knew she was coming on board... They, ...they didn't let anyone else around the area kind of... ...well, continue this lecture series, for example... ...or do any other things around Indigenous design. It was like, oh, no, 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 we're, we're, we're getting someone coming in. Like, hold on, it'll take a year. <laughs> but luckily she's here now, so we'll, we'll see.
1: And all the cultural load ends up on her. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's going to be full-on. Um, Sort of, I think now particularly in education, if we're talking about primary school and high school, a lot of the students coming through actually know more about Indigenous Australia than what the teachers who are teaching Indigenous architecture in general actually do. So what is it that we need, what is it that universities need to provide in terms of support for academics and teachers in order to get them up to a level where they can actually engage in critical debate and have these conversations with their students?
3: I think cultural competency, for one, is like bare minimum. Um, it should be mandatory for any teacher um, to have to undertake. Um, I know Jeefa Greenway and Rubenberg were previously hosting uh, cultural competency. Were you as well? Yeah. <laughs> um, for a lot of architectural practices. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know much about them. But things like that need to be mandatory. Um, yeah, to equip educators with the knowledge that they should be required to have, I think.
2: I'd agree, but I think also um, it's really important that like any other sphere of architectural academic knowledge, we give it the weight and the gravity that it deserves. We don't want every architecture lecturer just trying to dabble and say, oh, I just need to do a little course and then I'll be fine and I can tick that and I can teach them about this. I think... Having Indigenous architecture academics is really important. Having non-Indigenous architecture academics who have got an interest in this and do research in this is really important because then they know people and they can bring them in and all that kind of stuff and you can have networks of people working together. I think it's really dangerous to have a kind of uh, ad hoc approach. So if it's somebody's career, at least they've got um, a stake in it and you're going to get some depth to it. Um, and I think for us, we've, we've had a reasonable amount of success in that way, even though it's largely been taught by non-Indigenous academics. We've got Carol Gosam, who's really steaming ahead with the teaching now and doing a great job at it. But also, say, so Timo O'Rourke and I, we're on permanent staff. We both do research in this area and we're really committed to it. So at least if somebody says, you know, I want to do a thesis about... Um, the Aboriginal Housing Panel from the 1970s, we can point them in that direction so that people can actually follow their own path as well. It's not only about our knowledge, it's about being able to point them to somebody who might be able to help them or know enough to say, you could do something about this. So that's that's a one good aspect. But... You know, it hasn't been... I've got to say, it's amazing to get invited to something like this because this has not been a trendy field for the last 20 years of my career. (laughs) It's become much more trendy in the last year, which is fabulous, but it used to be a really daggy thing to be interested in, right? And so a lot of people haven't been interested in it. So good on you guys because you're... You know, it's the next generation effect, really.
3: I wonder... um, You mentioned that a lot of non-Indigenous people are you know teaching these things um what uh, i'm just curious sort of what uh things are in place to ensure that aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are working towards being in these positions so that they become the educators and is there are there systems in place to ensure this
2: there's no systems as such i guess um what we could say is uq as uh (laughs) rather belatedly, uh, launched its reconciliation action plan literally last week, 20 years after um, after University of Adelaide, which was the first one to launch one. So we literally got numbers on pages last week. So that's pretty dismal. Um, and it's really difficult, I guess, because, you know, every head of school would love to have an Indigenous architecture academic. But, you know, it's that whole thing... Kids have to stay um, respected and engaged at school, respected and engaged at high school, through university. It's a, it's a huge road to get there and we know all the barriers in place that make that extremely difficult. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of pipeline, as they would say in, you know, uh, in, in kind of admin speak, there's a lot of pipeline issues, but also there hasn't been up until now very much encouragement that that's a good thing for someone to do. Um, so, no, there aren't systems in place, but you're right, there, there should be. And, you know, I guess maybe maybe that change will come.
1: Well, Sydney recently, I'm not sure, is it UCID or UTS that recently had a million dollars bequeathed to it? For... It was UTS. Yeah. yeah, right. So, how's that going? Um, is there a system in place to support students coming through? Or is Yeah, well, Alison
0: the... Page is part of that, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. So, I think the idea is for... Um, Regular scholarships for Indigenous architect un- undergrads, which is fantastic. I think it's six a year, maybe.
2: Well, we have um, we have all those scholarships available, but we don't have people to take them up. So, uh, Ditto, s- they're sitting here yeah, and no yeah, one's yeah. taking them. We have them sitting there saying, do you want to do this? And of course, you know, if you're a talented, you know, uh, First Nations Indigenous Year 12 student, you're thinking, well, I could do this or I could do that. You know, you've got a plethora of choice and... Often it's not architecture and there's, n- there's not enough.
0: Yeah, we, of course, we, we're
2: not recognising excellence and we're not helping people get there. That's the problem, actually. See, I
3: think we need to be broadening our horizons in terms of the built environment um, and, you know, what a built environment practitioner is mm. because I didn't see many of those scholarships. Um, oh, really? Because I was in interior design. So, there's certainly some available, but when it comes to architecture, there are many and... Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's obviously not the only type of built environment practitioner. Yeah. Um, and there are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people going into other fields. Um, so, it, it they do need to be available.
2: I also think that the scholarships um, are not well pitched. I think a lot of the scholarships are aimed at Year 12 leavers. And wouldn't it be great if they were earned, aimed at people who were going to tertiary education later on in life and they had more support around them because... The communities that I know, people are often in a mindset to undertake and and in a place in their lives to undertake tertiary education when they're about 28 or 30 and maybe they've got kids and maybe they've had another career and they think, okay, I've done that, now I'm ready to go to uni. I've decided what I want to be and I want to be this. But the scholarships of a year 12 leavers Mm -hmm. often... And I think, well, that's not the only person who ever wants to study at uni. There's a lot of different people who might one a chance that it might not be mm.
0: 17. Uh, apart from myself, there's been two other Indigenous architects to come through UTS. One has graduated and one fell out in first year. Um, and I was tutoring him, at part of an ITAS tutoring program, and we'd sit down and, and we'd go through go through his work and, and I'd, I'd say, OK, so today you're learning about Le Cabousier and, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, did you watch the footy on the weekend? I'm like, yeah, yeah. We Now, back to Le at yeah, yeah, the footy's good. Anyway, I mean, <laughs> he, the point being his interests were anywhere but the, the curriculum he was being taught. Now, now, would it have been different if he was given a different architecture curriculum? Probably. Um, but, I mean, he was a school leaver. He did have a scholarship. He, he just wasn't into it.
1: I was mentoring a student from... Um from a particular university, I won't mention where, and uh, he dropped out in his first year and his response when I asked him why was that he didn't see himself represented in the degree at all and that he felt like he had to leave his culture and his understanding of who he was at the door because he was entering a very Western understanding of the built environment. And I think that's part of indigenising the curriculum is to facilitate and to allow people to be visible and to be... To empower them to go, okay, yeah, there is a place for indigenous architecture. There is a place for um, me in this field, and somewhere that I can actually achieve what I want to do, uh, and that I think that will help. But I think you're right; we do need to start earlier. We do need to sort of what well, even explain what architecture is to high school students, <laughs> <laughs> because I don't well, the built environment too, you know, broadly. Yeah. I say architecture, I mean the built environment, um, and so I guess in your experience of teaching particularly, well, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous students, and maybe perhaps in terms of your colleagues in your course, what has been their uh, response to any sort of Indigenous content or perhaps you presenting your thesis that... Um, like, have they engaged with it? Have they run away from it? Were they paralysed by it? Did they ask questions? Were they, what was the experience for them?
3: I often felt... Um Yeah, when tutors weren't offering me a non-Indigenous practitioner to look into as research, I often felt that um, a lot of the sort of critique was limited, almost as though a lot of my tutors didn't feel it was their place to critique, which made it really difficult um, as a student um, not being able to have um, fair critique on my work and to be able to develop my work in a way um, that would be really helpful um, because there were no... Uh, there were no Indigenous uh, tutors in my course, nor have there ever been um, at RMIT for interior design. And, yeah, so I, f- I found that really difficult um, because there was sort of a barrier when it came to the engagement level. Um, yeah, and I, I it, it did, I did get the sense that a lot of my tutors almost felt like, yeah, they couldn't engage. Um,
2: yeah. That's so interesting, isn't it? So they were afraid of offending you, do you think? Well... Uh I, I, I'm oh, not they really didn't sure know what to say.
3: I'm not really sure so there was definitely great critique and my uh, direct tutor was fantastic and a really brilliant tutor and gave me really great um, advice. Um, however, often when there were panels for just sort of general assessments um, yeah, I, I did find that quite difficult um, because yeah they, they got to a point where the critique sort of stopped. Um, And, yeah, it just made it really hard to sort of move forward with my designs.
0: I had something similar where I wanted to do... I wanted to acknowledge a massacre site um, for Leppington train station. And it was one of our third year projects. And I got advised to not really go that way... ...because um, we didn't have anyone who could critique it. And that was the response. Mm. Whereas uh, in another tutorial, someone did engage with that... ...and they weren't told that and then they did go and do it... ...and they had a great project. So.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to... ...there's a way that you can open up the space without claiming ownership of it. So you can say, look, I don't know everything about this... ...but I think it's really interesting so... Why don't we see if we can find someone for you to talk to or how do you think we could keep going with this? So, I think closing down options is a really bad idea. I think the best thing, and my approach is always to say, I don't know very much about this, but that's a really interesting idea. And then you can find a path forward. And I think it's really useful for students anyway to hear that you're not the font of all knowledge because no teacher is and there's heaps that we don't know. So, it's... I always say, it's, you know, it's just a journey you are on together and sometimes they know more than you and sometimes you know more than them, but you're really just trying to learn stuff together and, you know, one's got more experience about how to learn things, really. So, I think that can be helpful. Um, certainly, I teach a, a subject that's now called um, Aboriginal Architecture, but it used to be called Culture, Environment and Design and it had a huge amount of, like, historical content about... Um, classical Aboriginal architecture, contemporary Indigenous communities and forms of placemaking and that kind of stuff. Um, and some non-Indigenous students would be really freaked out by it and have the whole guilt, and be very upset because they claimed to never have heard about any of this stuff before, which I frankly, I don't know what they were doing, but they they didn't, had never heard about this, so they don't watch the news or listen in primary school or whatever. Um, Well, I mean, I had kids the same age and I was like, my kids did this stuff a lot at school, so I don't know what you were doing, but anyway. um, And so you you kind of do have to guide people on that, that, you know, it's, it's learning, you don't have to freak out and I guess you can also choose who you want to have as your heroes. Your heroes don't have to be from the same group that you're from. You can say, well, actually, my heroes might be the you know the resistance fighters I might think okay well actually I'm on their side I mean I know I'm the inheritor of their wealth but maybe I would you know like to learn more about these people you don't have to sort of stick to some sort of kind of racial lines or something and decide that you're only gonna that you're gonna get defensive about it I guess and that's the thing that you could sort of let go a bit and that can be very helpful um, but I, I guess I want to just tell one story. Is I, had a, I had a master's student that came, enrolled late and I had, was teaching a research subject uh, about Indigenous homelessness. Um, and there, there was only one spot left and so he had to do my research subject. And he was like, I do not want to do this. I am not interested in this. This is nothing to do with me. And he was really resistant and I said, well, I'm sorry, too bad. This is the only course left. Course coordinator, that's it. And he came up to me with tears in his eyes at the end after he'd written his essay and said, you've changed my life. And it wasn't me, of course, it was the content. And he said, I never knew all this stuff. This is amazing. I'm going to do a different career now. And I thought, well, that's good. He's learned. It. He's actually learned something instead of he was going to be a property developer, he reckoned. He changed oh, his mind. So, I don't know what he's doing now. But, you know, people can learn
1: things. And it's not the teacher. It's just the content. So... How do you then deliver that content without, particularly asking you Kelly as a non-Indigenous practitioner, how do you deliver that content without speaking on behalf of the community in those environments? Or or speaking on behalf of Indigenous Australia?
2: I guess you point them to things written by Indigenous people and you try and get Indigenous people in to speak on behalf of their communities and talk about their experience, um, which can be difficult because often the university doesn't support... (laughs) the payment of that kind of thing because they're like, you're the teacher, you're doing that, you don't have any money for to bring people in. So, you know, if you've got consultancy money there, you can use that to bring people in and I do that as much as I can. But I guess I'm also really aware that you don't want to burden communities too much with a whole lot of dumb questions from students. Not the students are dumb, but, you know, if you have to repeat the same thing again and again, it can be really tiring. Yeah. So there's a lot of really good content out there. Um, that we try and draw on as well so that people aren't having to come in and answer questions like, were there really massacres? You know, that's really... No-one wants to really be asked that a lot of times, year on year. And that's some of the... You know, you might get a question like that.
1: Um, Switching more to a structural perspective and the way that um, subjects are formed, particularly looking perhaps at studios versus history subjects versus construction subjects, are these standard formats of subjects suitable for teaching Indigenous content or do we need to change the way we structure subjects?
0: Well, that's a tricky one, but um, I'd I'd like to think both. I'd like to think, yes, it can fit in initially to our current structure... But it'd be great if we did change the structure to fit something more appropriate. I mean, these points exactly where we don't have funding to bring in an elder who has that bit of knowledge around this bit of country that we're doing our project on. Where we're not, and we we shouldn't do it then, right? We, so unless we can do figure that out. Um, but getting getting back to a more interesting thing is how can we. Um, how can design or architecture be a vehicle to empower that elder or empower that community? Um.
2: Um, we had a, a visitor from Canada recently and he was talking about how in his architecture school they have elders, resident elders, in there as part of the whole architecture school. It's it's amazing. Laurentian University in Canada. Um, and... They're, they're, you know, they're in there hanging around, they're doing their own thing, they're working in their offices, they're helping students, they've got a big Indigenous community um, but they had this really nice pastoral role and um, one lady who was an elder, and very tiny lady, she saw somebody critting someone and the opposite of what you got, the crit went too far and I don't think it was an even, even an Indigenous student but she took the tutor aside later and said that's not how we treat people our values in this community are and she gave him a right telling off and it was nothing to do with design but it was about how you treat people and how you behave and those broader protocols which I thought was really interesting and he was really proud of her and she went and said to him later because he's the head of school and said oh I think I've I've gone too far and he said no that's your job you can do that you're an elder we're meant to listen to you so I think that I think there's all sorts of learnings to be had at lots of different levels and some of them aren't formal. Some of them are about how we treat people, how we share, how we respect each other. So I think there's a lot of levels. So it's really hard to imagine universities agreeing (laughs) to you know, smashing up the curriculum. But there are a lot of places now doing these uh, on-country projects and that kind of stuff, which can be really great and some can be less than great as well. So, they offer a really great holistic opportunity, but I think you have to be really careful about how you run them.
0: And, sorry, go on.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, like, that really
3: sounds like a perfect example of where you do give elders power okay. and and put them in positions of authority where and in a permanent position mm-hmm. rather than just having like a one-off consultant come in to one of your lectures i think is yeah that sounds great and um yeah i think in terms of formalities um i don't think we should be expecting um any elder to adhere to any sort of formality because that sort of just removes the importance of their knowledge to begin with. Um, Yeah, I think a a totally different type of value. Um, And yeah, I think it just comes back to, again, starting from the bottom, we really just... I would think it would be really difficult to start incorporating these knowledge systems in um, our current educational system just because... I think a lot of dismantling needs to happen first, and a lot of shake up needs to happen because, like you just said, um, can you imagine a university being okay with that? Probably not. Um, yeah, I just think I, I'm not sure what the answer is, but. Private architecture school?
2: Mm. Maybe, perhaps. That's a controversial comment, but <laughs> mm. you know. Like, if you run it... Like, the the AA can do what they like, right? Mm. They run it how they want. It's not the same as other universities because they say, well, this is how we do it. So, maybe if you didn't have the whole, you know, structure of the rest of the university... Mm. But then, of course, it's not, it's not just architecture you're talking about. Of course, it would be... It's a whole of university or a whole of education approach. Yeah, not yeah. even
3: just the built environment. In, yeah. in all um, educational streams, um, I think a lot of dismantling needs to begin before we can consider incorporating these educational streams as um, permanent streams.
0: Well, a big one seems to be getting permanent positions for knowledge holders.
3: But at the same time, I think that's really great, but it would be so awful to be you know, to make these positions available and to fill these positions only to have a system that doesn't support them. Oh, of course, Because yeah. I, I think that needs to happen first before we get, you know, create these positions and give these positions to people who have such a wealth of knowledge.
0: It reminds me a bit of um, what's happening in the profession, in the built environment profession, architecture, engineering, where they're developing things called reference groups now. Um, so, it's a little bit like the permanent position, but it's, it's like, for example, a government agency is going to be doing all of this work, bigger big road upgrades on, on this country. And so, they'll get elders from that country to form a reference group, pay them for their time. I think they could do a lot more, um, but it is something that I'm noticing is a new, you know, quote-unquote new thing. Um, and that seems to be an important... ...point to this restructuring, you know. It, it has to start with the, the people who, who know the knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, right? Who, people who know the knowledge can teach it. But then there's also this kind of thing around permissions as well. Mm-hmm. So, very important.
1: Yeah, permissions and cultural authority. And un- I think teaching that might be really important as well. Protocols c- and uh, any sort of um, understanding of processes... ...would be really helpful as something... ...as content to be taught in the architecture degree... We're doing a series of videos at the moment about this,
2: like, what don't you do? What don't you say? What do you say and what do you do? Because they're really important and just those basics. Because it's really easy to be
1: rude without meaning to be rude if, not, if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, there's a great um, image of, like, black fella bingo... I can't remember the artist who created it, but um, basically you look at that and you just check off every single one because all the things that have been said to you and you're just like, oh, okay, (laughs) good. Um, Another sort of more structural question. Um, So 12-week courses are pretty short to convey a breadth of knowledge and so naturally the subjects... You you need to have a, a number of subjects in order to cover enough knowledge so that when students graduate they can be effective in practice. But how do you start to split up a holistic understanding... ...of country, place, practice, protocol uh, into different subjects. And where do you start? What has to come first?
0: Gee, that's a tricky question. Um, The thing that pops to my mind straight away is that every project... ...no matter if it's a building, a road... ...it's always on Aboriginal country. And so that seems to be a very appropriate place to start. Where, you know, what, what constitutes this country in terms of many things. So yes, topography... Um, climate, but also culture, um, etc. So if we start to to at least understand that that first part, then I think we can move on from then.
2: Um, it's hard to know where to start. I try and well, we try at UQ to make sure that students are hearing about original cultural history in the first year um, in their history subjects. Um, not to relegate you know first Nations history to history, but to make sure that it's part of that um, but I guess I want to I want to make sure that um, people stop thinking about architecture as objects only, and I guess that's one of the big challenges of um, architecture and built environment courses is that there has been this massive trend for a long time to formalism and theory, which is sort of architecture as object and divorced from its social and historic context. And I think it's really important to, you know, rethink architecture as part of a social milieu. And it's really that... It's kind of an attitudinal change because then you're not just taking into consideration First Nations perspectives, but you're also thinking about the city or the countryside where you're working and the town and, you know, the environmental effects, the whole, like, the context of it... The idea of, um, I guess, of country is not just um, an idea that's only about Indigenous people in the past. You know, it's, I guess, about what's happening now too and those kinds of attitudes can support... Um, Indigenous people learning and participating in the university but it's also something you could take to other projects in terms of thinking about the context a bit more and who's going to occupy the space and who might it affect who aren't the occupants, who are the neighbours and the river next door and all that sort of stuff. So for me it's about that broader context and trying to get that but of course that's difficult because some people really still love the object.
0: It reminds me of um, something a uh, um, international academic said to me once. He said, um, "Where's all the Aboriginal people? Where's all... in, in the built environment?" Was what he meant. What he was what he meant. Um, and I think that gets towards what you're talking about with this. You know, w- we maybe want an architecture or a design that is less about formalism, less about the object, but much more about rooted in context, understanding the country, understanding its. So, you know, a, a world where we're zipping around, you know, we flew in from Sydney today, we, we go around so quickly, what, what actually distinguishes a place from a place? And, and, it, and it's how we deal with the built environment. So if those environments are different, I think that's really good. Um, and if they're the same, then I think we're going to get people feeling, feeling it and, and, and in, in a way disassociating themselves with the built environment in some way. In, ...in very terrible ways or very small ways. But that, that's actually a big thing, for me at least.
3: Yeah, I think what you said about... <coughs> excuse me. Um, ...moving away from the object. Yeah, it's so important. It's something I spoke about uh, in my thesis. Um, first looking at... And you'd be familiar with this, Nura, ...which is synonymous with home, country, land. Um, before we can have Nura, we must first consider skin. We must then consider law and ceremony... Um, because without these things, there is no Nora, um, there is no country. Um, yeah, and so looking beyond that and, and really placing value um, in these things that all contribute, um, yeah, to, to the structural and, and to the physical.
0: What was it? Skin?
3: Skin, ceremony and law. Hmm. Hmm. So but this is just Wolperi. Like you yeah, c- yeah. couldn't possibly uh, use that uh, for, an, well, I mean... Potentially, but, yeah, looking at each nation as an individual, um, I I can't possibly speak for any other nation.
1: Talking, again, about um, protocols and the way that we approach indigenising curriculum, is there such a thing as a best practice model? And if so, what might it be?
0: Well, I feel like we've been trying to get there, at least in this conversation, right? I mean, we've got... um, one a bit, it's a bit of a spectrum. On one spectrum is this is how the universities operate... ...and thus what can we do now? And then on the other spectrum is... ...wouldn't it be great if, if it was actually doing it the best practice stuff? So I think you want to talk about that, right? <laughs> um, what do I, you think?
2: I reckon we're a long way from best practice. I reckon we've only just began to scratch the surface. I was thinking about it the other day because Paul Mehmet's one of my main teachers and um, he wrote that book, Ganya, Gundi* and Whirly, that came out in 2007. And in that, he was kind of making the argument for there being an Aboriginal architecture because before that, a lot of people were saying it's vernacular architecture or ethno-architecture or whatever, some word that means architecture that's not really architecture. Um and so, at that point, that was the kind of the argument. And people bought it, which was great, but we're only 10 years beyond that. So, it's great that the debates have really moved on since then, but I think we're heaps away from us being able to say, oh, yeah, we've got it, and, you know, communities are empowered, and they're helping contribute, and they're, you know, they've got ideas, and we're listening to them, and we've got them in the curriculum across the
1: university. I mean, wow. Nah, not yet. <laughs> I can't even imagine. What's the utopia then? What's the utopia of this situation? If you could have three things change in the way that we practice and teach, sorry, the way that we teach architecture, what would they be? What's your top three priority? I think that's
3: a really hard question to answer, living be. in the midst of this
2: We'd have a lot more funding for universities, hugely well-funded institutions that can make actual choices instead of going, well, we've got this amount of money for that course, what can we do with it? Because that's what happens now. You get a budget, which is tiny, which means that, you know, your tutors are volunteering their time and everyone's overworking. Um, you, You wouldn't have that. You'd have people like me saying, oh, fantastic. OK, what are we going to do this semester? Who could we invite? Let's invite people in and let's ask them and let's have enough time so that we can plan this and genuinely see what people needed and were interested in and that whole idea of long-term relationships could develop. So you could say, let's, let's put out an expression of interest to see what community is interested in working with us to for the next 10 years to, to do projects mm-hmm. and what would they be interested in and maybe the first years will be designing playgrounds or you know, um, windows for a preschool and maybe the master's students will be helping design some sort of public space or, I don't know, something like that and that could be really long-term and holistic and fabulous but that really is a pipe dream at the moment.
0: Well, I've, I've got a few off the top of my head and these are only personal. They're not ones that would be vetted by the whole Aboriginal Australian community. But um, I would love for our cities and built environments to reflect Aboriginal Australia, Um, be that through spatial ideas of what it means to be Indigenous versus surface ideas or or 2D surface, you know, the art and design and patterns versus spatial ideas around what it means. Um, That would be great because I... i 've been jet setting around recently for a few weddings, you know Singapore and whatnot, and you go to some cities and a lot of them start to look a little bit the same and personally I'd, I um, would would prefer it if if our our built environment did say something about our culture as opposed to just there's cotton ons everywhere you go um, <laughs> okay it 's a small one it 's a silly one but um, and another one might be uh, Around the idea of how, how design could um, empower indigenous people. Because and that's that's a trickier one. You know, I, I can't I can't just wave the magic wand and have that one happen. But I'm seeing massive structural changes, at least in the time when I went through bachelors when they said no, don't do anything to all of a sudden, can you come back and give us all the stuff? Can you come and like so there's there is institutes wanting this and government wants it, and now good corporate citizens, um, i.e. our companies, they want to do it too. So there's the, I work for an engineering firm, part-time, and as an architect, um, and it's fantastic, being, being the only architect in the room, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> they just don't know how to draw, that's all. Is there any engineers in the room? Good. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> no, I, I do love, in- it's interesting because engineers are being given a lot of control over design. So cl- uh, a client will go, okay, engineer, you control the design. Now you you um you control that architect. <laughs> um, but anyway, I suppose the idea of of how might how might we increase this autonomy or or you know have have very strong indigenous leaders and and, and thus that in itself. And I think we do we do have a lot, but I'm I'm you know I'm, I, I want more. You know, I'm, I think we got a lot of what we have, but more would be better. Black Architecture is an annual Embervillian Talk series bringing together Indigenous built environment practitioners. Do stick around for the second half.